I'm going to open up to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. This is our third time that we have visited this chapter. And as I think I said last time, you know, it is just, it, it's a chapter that is long and in depth and covering one kind of primary purpose, primary thought. Um, but is teaching it on many different levels, many different ways, and is trying to drive home uh, some things to the disciples that Christ really wants them to understand. Remember that we started off this chapter with him addressing the big picture, big problem of offending or um, causing to stumble one of your brothers and sisters, one of your, the, the fellow disciples of Christ, as he describes them as his little ones, his dear little ones, his little children. You know, he makes the point that this whole chapter is kind of coming off of the idea of offending another follower, a weaker follower, a stronger follower, whoever it may be. The idea that to offend one of them, to offend a believer in Jesus Christ, to cause him to stumble, to do something in your life, to cause yourself to stumble, to do something in your life, to cause someone else to stumble, is a grave offense in the eyes of God. That Christ was saying, I protect them, they're my little sheep, I take care of them, I love them, I love them so much I gave my life for them. He says, so you can't just come in and wreck their lives. You can't come in and cause them to stumble. You can't either by hook or by crook or by accident. We don't, I'm not going to allow you to mistreat my children, my disciples. He says, if you enter into this, if you decide willfully and maliciously to cause one of my children, if you're trying to cause them to stumble, to fall, he says, look, I'm just going to tell you, it'd be better if you would hang a giant stone around your neck and go throw, throw yourself in the ocean because the punishment of such is going to be far worse than that. He says, and in your own lives, consider your own holiness. If you want to see how serious I am about it, if you cause yourself to fall or stumble... He says it would be better that you cut the hand off that's leading you in that direction because to cause yourself to fall or stumble is such a grave offense. The punishment is far worse. In fact, he uses the, the, the illusion or he points towards hell and to fire into destruction as kind of the, the punishment in those areas. So, I mean, he gives a very serious tone with this. I have a ferocious... Love that's never ending for my disciples. I will protect them to the uttermost and I will destroy those who offend them. He says, woe to the world. Woe to those who will cause offense to my little ones. So then he goes into the parable of the lost sheep, which is what we talked about last time, or the 90 and 9 and the 1. That was verses 11 through 14. And we talked about that, how Christ gives us this perfect, beautiful picture of his relationship with his little ones, his disciples. He says, this is the picture I want you to see. The picture of a shepherd who has a flock of sheep, a hundred in number. Ninety-nine of them are hanging out in the field like they're supposed to. They haven't left. They haven't strayed. They're enjoying the master's presence. They're enjoying what God and what their shepherd in that case has provided for them. But one of those sheep decides to go out on their own and think they can do things better and handle life better on their own. So, man, they take off. They don't need a shepherd. They don't need anyone telling them what to do. They don't need anybody guiding their lives. They've got this. They're independent, self-willed. They know how to handle it. They're captains of their own destiny. And in that case, the sheep wanders off, gets on the side of the mountain, gets stuck, gets trapped, gets attacked, gets mauled, gets broken. And you'd say, oh, well, that sheep got what was coming to them. They did what they, look what they had. They had the riches. They had the grassland. They had the protection. They had the ever watchful and comforting hand of the shepherd man. They had it all. And look, they wandered off. They chose their path. They got themselves where they're at. Now they can pick themselves up by their bootstraps and get themselves out. That's a lot of our mentality today. You got yourself where you are. You made the wrong choices. You made the slip-ups. You did this. You're responsible for this, and therefore everything that you're reaping is because of what you have sown. So you get what you deserve, and that's just the end of it. But Christ presents... A better picture. 
Christ says, no, you don't understand. I have paid for you. You're my sheep. I laid down my life for you. I gave the most precious price ever was for you. So no, you're not going to get to just wander off and fix yourself. You couldn't fix yourself to begin with. You can't fix yourself now. I had to come die to fix you. So in the same case, it's not, well, good luck. I hope you find your way back. It's no, I've paid for you, buddy. You're coming home. I'm going to bring you home. Yeah, I let you stray off. Yes, I let you get yourself into that situation for my own purposes. And a lot of times to teach you the lesson that you needed to learn. But I don't just leave you out there and say, well, find your way home. You get back. If you make it back, great. If not, you're too much trouble to go after. Instead, Christ gives us the picture of the shepherd who is willing to go out and get that sheep who once again has done the stupid thing. Who's once again has fallen into the same trap, who has given in to the same temptation, who's listened to the same poor advice and gotten themselves in the same broken situation. And Christ says, yep, you did it again, but you know what? My blood covered you then, my blood covered you now. I'm not letting you go. You're coming home. You're coming home. Christ did not just leave his sheep out on the side of the mountain in the destroyed situation they got themselves into and says, well, good luck. Or, well, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of you. You're wasting my time. Look at all these other good 99 sheep. They do so good. They stay so well. They listen so well. I'm going to go spend more time with them because you know what? They're just, they're so good. I don't need you. I've got 99 good ones. I'm going to leave you alone. You're a hassle. You're a drain on me. Instead, Christ says, no, the rejoicing is of the shepherd who goes and gets that one. Some people would say, cut your losses, man. You've got 99. Why do you need that one? He said, because I bought that one. I'm not letting him go. It's my investment. You'd say, well, it's a bad investment. Cut him loose. He says, no, I'm going to make my investment a better investment. I don't let him go. I don't say, well, you're a bad investment and now I'm cutting you out of my portfolio because you're too much of a hassle. He says, no, I've paid for you and I want you to be a better, great, good investment. And therefore, I will bring you back and I will teach you again. And I will bring you back and I will mold you again. And I will bring you back and I will correct you again. And I will bring you back and I will rub the balm on your head again. I will heal your wounds. I will put you back where you belong. And he never lets go. There's a beautiful contemporary song that that's kind of the refrain. He never lets go through the trials, through the storms. Oh, no, he never lets go. And it's over and over and over again that that's repeated. And I'm thankful that that's our Savior. I'm thankful that that's our Savior. And we talked about that last week. And we talked about the comfort and the peace and the hope that should give to us. That thanks be to God, there is no point that we can, even after we have been born again and changed and moved in the right direction and taught the right things, that even when we know that we are going to stumble again, we're going to fall, we're going to get sometimes in very dire situations, that God doesn't ever go, yeah, you know what, you got yourself there, get yourself out. Or we'll see you later. I'm thankful for a Savior who's willing to come grab me for the 1100th time and pull me back into the sheepfold. So that's a very comforting verse, but it's not set aside. This is not outside of the entire picture. That was just another example of Christ saying, see how much I care about my little ones. You know why I gave you those harsh tones that like, if you offend them, I'm going to cut your head off. You know why I said that? Because I love them with a ferocious love. You want to know how much I love them? I'll still go out and get them when they're being stupid. I'll bring them back. Over and over and over again, I paid for them. They're my sheep. I'm going to take care of them. And so he continues that on as he goes through verses 15 through 20. These verses are extremely common to us and well-known because these verses here and the rest of the chapter, this is kind of like why we read Matthew 18. Anytime someone references Matthew 18, a lot of times it's for this. It's how do you deal with the offended brother? How do you deal with the conflict within the church? How do you deal in a Christian setting with someone who you have a disagreement with? Everybody goes to Matthew 18. Well, there's a formula there. That's how we know there's a three-step program that you're supposed to go through. And if the person fails the three-step program, then you get to kick them out. That's how you deal with it because that's what Matthew 18 says. 
But as we have gone through this for the last two years now, what I hope that we find from this is that that's not what the story is in this chapter. Just like when we were way back in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 talking about the things about the different vices and sins that he was calling out and we were talking about adultery and things and we were talking about divorce and he'll bring that up again. He doesn't bring this up to go, okay, you want a New Testament law system that you can abide by? Then this is how you do adultery. This is how you do divorce. These are the five steps that you have to walk through and when that's done... You can either go to the left or the right. Here with forgiveness, it wasn't okay. Here you go. You need a good, simplified, three-step process that you can follow. Because I think as we kind of have learned throughout the existence of the written word here, that the three, four, five, or ten-step processes that may have been implemented are never kept very well. Say, oh, well, here's this beautiful, succinct three-step process that we can address all problems with, and then everything will be great. I don't think anybody who has ever tried it with that approach understands and knows and has seen that that's not how it ever falls out. Never falls out that way that people go, oh, okay, well, great. So we we did the process and the process did great. No, it's not. Because that's not the story that's being told here. That's not what Christ is teaching. This is a continuation of everything he's talked about before. It's right there beside, cut your hand off so you don't offend. Woe to the world for offenses. Hang a millstone around your neck if you offend. This is how I care about my sheep. This is how far I'm willing to go. This is my ferocious compassion for them and my love for them and my dedication to them. All of that is bubbling out and in everything that he's about to talk about from 15 on. So we'll read 15 through 20. It says, Moreover, if your brother offends or trespasses against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he will hear you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear you, then you need to take one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That's quoting an Old Testament phrase. And if he shall neglect to hear them, then you tell it to the church. But if he neglect or refuses to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say to you, whatsoever you will bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say to you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that you shall ask, it shall be done for you. By my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Now again, all those verses there, everything he's talking about, you go from this, how do you deal and how do you address offenses from a brother, to then two or three being gathered in my name. We love that verse. Everybody wants to bring that verse up, especially when it's on like a small crowd Sunday. See, all you need is two or three people. You don't need a big crowd. See, that's what Jesus was saying. I mean, that's how we take these verses so often. But taking them out like that, they don't make a lot of sense. What, is it, what does the two or three gathered in my name have anything to do with how you deal with a brother who won't listen to the church? Like that doesn't, this doesn't go together if we're just kind of piecemealing them out there and saying, okay, well, these are these nice little succinct teachings that Jesus was giving us about how you do X, Y, Z. He said, this is how you're supposed to deal with offenses. And then all you need is a couple of people to gather together. And there you go. Now, we've got this nice little picture. Well, that's not what he was talking about. Instead, he's going forward to talk about how to deal with the offended brother because he's reverting everything back to what he was just talking about. I don't want you to offend. Do not offend my little ones. Do not offend each other. Do not let yourself become an offense. Well, then the natural progression of that is okay lord but what happens when someone is offended and this is not offended as we have said this is not offended as in you hurt my feelings by what you said okay this is not offended as in i don't like the direction that you're going in and that has offended me that's not what he is talking about the word offense there is to cause to stumble now that can take on a lot of different areas and a lot of different possibilities within that realm of possibilities you may have had your feelings hurt because of it 
But this is not you have offended me. You said that I wore the same scarf and shirt for the next Sunday that I wore last time. You've offended me. Okay, I'm offended. Now, how do we address this? Well, we got to take it to each other, and then we got to take two or three more, and then we got to go to the church, and that's not what he's talking about. Christ here is carrying on this theme of unity and unoffensiveness within his little ones, and then how to deal with these stumblings, these offenses within the family if and when they do happen. You know, we were talking about the five different categories that we were going to look at in this chapter. And we were talking about temptation, and we were talking about the idea of hierarchy, and we were talking about restoration. That's what we're talking about here. Restoration. When something goes wrong, when the offense happens, when this develops within the community, what do you do? How do you restore in this way? Or more to the point, why would you restore? Why does it matter? You know, sometimes in our mindset, following very much off of the, the one in the 99 sheep, okay? A lot of times we will come to points as we are entering into life together that we'll go, well, if you just don't like it, then leave. You're the one that wants to go off. Then go off. We're happy here in this sheepfold. We're happy here in this pen. We like our shepherd. We like the grass where it's at. We don't have any ambitions for anything else. If you don't like that, then take off, chief. Go wherever you want to go. So you've got the one sheep in that pen going, I don't really like things around here. I don't like things how things are run around here. I don't like this shepherd. He's always hard on me. He takes that staff and hits me all the time. Doesn't hit you like that. I don't like the side of the grass I'm eating on. I don't like anything about this. I want to go. And the sheep's response is, look, dude, we're not going with you. We like it here. Take off. See you later. If that's what you want to do, go do it. In fact, get out of here because you're annoying us with your constant bleeding. It's annoying. Either enjoy it or leave. Nobody likes a sourpuss. Get out. Okay? We don't want to hear it anymore. Well, what Christ is teaching here about restoration is actually the opposite of how we interpret it. We interpret this more often than not that this is Christ teaching this little handy formula of how you deal with disagreement within the church. It's a one, two, three punch kind of deal. Okay? All right, we got someone who's causing problems. Let's go to them privately because, you know, we don't want to talk about them in gossip and be guilty of that. So we go to them in private. They didn't listen to it. Probably because they've already been disagreeing with you for the last two, three, four, five years. You know the points they're disagreeing with. It's not something new. But you want to keep to the formula. So you go by yourself knowing that it's not going to work out because you already believe them to be wrong. They already believe you to be wrong. But you want to honor this little one, two, three system. So you walk up to them and you say, hey, I know you're wrong. You know I'm wrong. And... We disagree. All right, that didn't work. So let me take two or three of my posse with me that I have gone off and said, okay, hey, you know how this guy's wrong? Let's go tell him how wrong he is. And then when he doesn't listen to us, then we'll go back to the church. So then we take our two or three over there, our friends, our buddies, our compatriots who we have joined together with. And we have said, this is how we know so-and-so is wrong. And so then we go after him. Hey, you know, you're wrong. Hey, I know you're wrong. I know all three of you are wrong. Well, you're not listening to the three of us. So now we got to go to the church. So then you drag him up in front of the church, and as the church, if you have, have been circling your wagons and getting everybody together with yourself, go, this guy is so wrong, and we're going to put him in front of the church and show how wrong he really is. And then when he says, you know what, I've had the same problems, the same disagreements, the same stumblings, I've had the same issue this whole time, and all you have cared about is proving how wrong I am. All you have cared about is continuing the stumbling. You haven't removed the block. You haven't resolved the issue. All you have done is one, two, three, proven. I'm still offended. I'm still stumbling. I'm still struggling. I'm still where I was. There's nothing been gained. Now you feel satisfied to be able to tell that one sheep, see you later, go to your mountain. And you can come back and go, we followed the process. We're righteous in this. We've done what was right. We did exactly what Jesus said. It's their fault. They didn't listen to me. They didn't listen to the three. They didn't listen to the church. And now they're gone. Good riddance. They didn't want to be here. You heathen. You know. 
we've followed the steps. We're okay. We are righteous. We've done what was to be done. Christ was giving this command as a continued admonition and warning to his disciples. If you offend one of these little ones, it's better that you go jump in the sea. Now, a lot of times people will go, oh, well, it's the guy that wouldn't listen. It's the girl that wouldn't listen. That's the one that needs to go throw themselves into the sea. And what I'm telling you is, is Christ is actually encouraging the opposite. You who would so arbitrarily, ritualistically or legalistically throw a sheep out of the pen just because you're actually the one that's guilty in this means. He's not giving you a simplified one, two, three punch to be able to get someone out. He's actually giving you a first, second, third, fourth, fifth, 500th opportunity to try and get someone and mostly yourselves over this stumbling block. It is to encourage further dialogue, forgiveness, forbearance, and grace is what it is. He's saying, if you were under your same legalistic Old Testament kind of stuff that you love to be under, then what you would say is, it's very much like the Old Testament. Oh, you don't want to do what we want to do. Therefore, get out. You're cut off from the camp. You don't want to follow the way I think we should follow. Get out. You're cut off from the camp. Look, you're rebellious. Look, you're in disagreement. When we have examples of that, we're going to go through numbers and we're about to come up where y'all might have. Well, no, I don't think we did Wednesday night. Anyway, the coming up Wednesday night, we're going to look at some people, okay, who they didn't like the way things were going. All right. It was Aaron and Miriam. You know, they had ideas. Hey, why does Moses get all the authority? Why should he? I mean, don't we hear from the Lord, too? And God says, I've chosen one. I chose Moses. I didn't choose you, Miriam. Now you got leprosy. You know, I mean, that's kind of a, that. That was a very simple one and done kind of a deal. All right. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament history where that's the case. In fact, over and over again, we've gone through 18 chapters, and I think we will see that this has been the one and done method that they've all held to. The Pharisees with their hard, wicked hearts would say, Jesus, you're healing on the Sabbath day. Get you done, man. To the edge of the city with you. We're going to stone you. Jesus, you're teaching things contrary to the law. And Jesus said, no, I'm actually fulfilling the law. And they say, no, we disagree. Let's stone him. Let's get him out of here. And instead, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, if you act in that manner towards one of my little ones, you are creating stumblings, you're creating offenses. It is better that you go hang yourself with a stone and throw yourself into the sea. He says, I'm not going to take that lightly. And like we talked about before, those were heavy, scary passages. And I think in all honesty, Jesus was literally trying to verbatim scare the hell out of them. Okay. And I say it that way because he used hell as the scary thing. He says, chop your hand off or look to hell. Those weren't light words. He wasn't saying, no, that's just Texas in the summer. Don't worry about it. It's really hot and a little bit unbearable, but... No, he was giving them a real threatening tone. Get yourself together. I'm not going to tolerate it. Oh, but Jesus, look, you're the one that goes out and you help and you go and grab that shepherd. He says, yeah, and I'm liable to break that sheep's legs and throw him over my shoulder to bring him home. Sometimes that had to be done by the historical accounts. Sheep kept wandering. Guess what the shepherd did? He broke his legs. Say, well, that sounds cruel, and Peter would be very upset with Jesus about that. And I'd say, well, yeah, probably so, but you know what? You didn't have a sheep wandering anymore. He was good enough to take him home, wrap that leg up, and let it heal. You know, all fractures will heal eventually, so it's not a big deal. I mean, you know, it's just six weeks. It's just six weeks for the rest of your life. Think about it. It's not that big of a deal. But sometimes he had to do that. Sometimes he had to break the sheep's legs so that they quit doing it. So, yeah, he did threaten them. He threatened them severely and harshly and said, you better get right with this because I'm not going to take it lightly. I'm not going to let unbelievers offend my little ones and tell them I'm going to punish them. But then when believers offend my little ones go, oh, well, but you're a believer. So I have a little more grace with you. He says, no, if I'm going to treat them like that, I'm going to treat you like that. If you are going to so blatantly disobey and cause stumblings to one of my little ones, then I am going to punish you for that. And here's the same thing. 
He says, if you were so flippantly going to try to run off my sheep because they just are either stumbling over something, disagreeing over something, have maybe been offended in the sense of they have been caused to stumble by you. So this is not a little one, two, three. This is how they get out. This is a repeat yourself. Go another mile. Seek a little more grace. Try to give more forgiveness because that is how I am commanding you to deal with one another. The goal is restoration, not legalistic fulfillment. The goal is restoration, not legalistic fulfillment. You say, well, but he does get to a point where he says, see, then you cut him off and say he's a heathen and a publican or basically an unbeliever. Well, I think there is a case. There are cases in particular within the church and especially in this day and time. And and I'm not going to say especially in this day and time. In all days and times, there are plenty of occasions where people will come into the church and act and profess like they believe in the things that Jesus Christ teaches and professes. But they don't. And he says, if they're going to act like an unbeliever, then by all means, you can let them go and be an unbeliever. So he does give a means of you're not, you know, you you don't have to feel guilty about an unbeliever acting as an unbeliever and then you having to deal with the unbeliever. And you don't have to feel guilty that if a believer for some reason decides they want to start acting like an unbeliever and they're not going to be swayed in that, you also have no guilt in the Pushing them out to say, look, if you want to be an unbeliever, then go live as an unbeliever. Paul writes in his letters many times about brothers and sisters in Christ who have been so wrong in what they've done. He said, you know what? I had to let them go. I turned them over in one verse. He says, I turned them over to Satan so that their flesh might be destroyed, so that their soul or their spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. That's. I mean, he he says he had to do that. Now, again, I don't think it was this one, two, three thing. I don't think Paul was just like, hey, you know what? You said my tie looked ugly, so here you go. You know, we're turning you over to Satan. I worked hard on that. I don't think that was the case. I don't think it was something done flippantly. And it most certainly in Paul would have not been something done legalistically. Oh, well, you have accomplished the three check marks. And therefore, ergo, here are two, four, you are done. Lots of grace, lots of mercy, lots of compassion, lots of forbearance. And that's why Christ says it's not a one and done. He gives you kind of a three-step process. But that's not to say that that's one, two, three, and you're out. I think more he was encouraging the process of further interaction for the goal of restoration. That's what he was going for. Saying, don't be so quick to cut off. Don't be so quick to cut out. Don't be so quick to let go. If someone is trying to leave, if a sheep is trying to run out of the pen, then it should be with all the other sheeps hanging onto their ankles saying, please don't go. Don't do this. It's only going to cause you further harm and problems. That should be the manner. And that, I think, is what Christ is teaching here. I'm the shepherd that's willing to go out and get them from the mountain. I'm the shepherd that's willing to go out and grab them when they're in the brambles. I'm the shepherd that's willing to go do that. And if you are my disciples, my followers, then you should have that same ferocious tenacity within the sheepfold to desire and crave that that one sheep who is either stumbling, has stumbled, or will stumble, that you're grabbing them and trying to pull them back in and say, no, 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 no. You can't do this. You're going to fall. And Jesus' point here coincides with what he tells Peter later in verses 22, what we're going to talk about next time. When When Peter says, well, but how many times am I supposed to do this, Jesus? And Jesus says, you're supposed to do it 70 times 7, man. You're supposed to do this over and over and over and over again because Peter is coming from his Jewish mentality. He's going, I want the one and done. Where where is my steps? Where is my steps? I know that's not right, but where are my steps? All right. What is it? I need to know, Jesus, who's my neighbor so I know who I can love and who not to. Who's my enemy? Because I need to know who I can love and who I'm not to. Or am I supposed to love them or I'm supposed to hate them? No, that's not right either. I need to know, though, what are my steps? 
Where are they at? How many times am I supposed to do this? You tell me I'm supposed to be forgiving and forbearing. You tell me how many times because I need to know when that mark is hit so I know that I can then, in a self-righteous way, cut them out of my lives and say, be done and I don't have to deal with you anymore. And Jesus says, it's basically forever. There is no time. There is no termination. He says 70 times 7 or 7 times 7 or whatever we put in there, whatever phrase is used in whichever book that it's recorded. But it's not even then a terminal thing. He doesn't say, okay, well, when you reach 144 times and you're good or 144,000 times and you're good. It's not that. He is giving the idea it is an endless forgiveness or what I like to call compounded Forgiveness. You've heard in like a financial term, the thing of compounded interest. That's why you invest early, because then as the interest starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it starts compounding. And then by the time you're 53, you retire. At least that's what my game plan is with my financial planner. She's got me set up so that I can retire when I'm 50 because of compounded interest. The same thing here, compounded forgiveness. Compounded forgiveness. Say, well, how many times am I supposed to? Compounding forgiveness. Forgiveness on forgiveness on forgiveness on forgiveness. Oh, yeah, but they're offending on offending on offending on offending. He says, yeah, you continue to forgive on forgiving on forgiving on forgiving. He says there is no end to it. There is no termination. There is no time where you write them off and say they're just done. He says compounded forgiveness. Seventy times seven. And these statements don't contradict. 15 through 20, talking about this 1, 2, 3, this is how you do it, does not contradict with what Christ is then telling Peter in 22. Because originally you'd go back and go, well, but Christ just said we only have to take it to three different steps. And here you're telling Peter it's 70 times 7 steps. Is that not a contradiction? That's why understanding 15 through 20 is important. He wasn't telling them. You have a three-step process, and when that's terminated, you can be done with them. He was saying, if anything, you need to be carrying this out over and over and over again. There's no end to it. It's a compounding forgiveness. That every time you forgive, it adds a little more interest to it. And then that makes you forgive even more the next time. And that adds a little more interest, and that brings you more forgiveness in the next time. Just as the shepherd is willing to continually go out and get that wayward sheep who for the 700th time has fallen in the same goofy trap and he's still willing by his forgiving, loving, compassionate self to go out and do that. He says, this is me. I am this shepherd. This is my characteristic. And you're saying you're one of my little ones, my disciples, one of my followers. Guess what? We are to do that too. That's how it works. That's what we've been preaching about for two years, is if we call ourselves Christians, we have to act like Christ. Well, how was Christ? He was a forgiving, loving shepherd, and he was willing to go back over and over and over and over and over again to get that person who has fallen over and over and over and over again. So in the same way, we are to be marked by this forgiveness. Christians as a whole, are to be marked by their forgiveness. Just like we have talked about being marked by compassion in the last chapter, that that is what we are, that's a characteristic, it's a defining characteristic of being a Christian is being compassionate. I mean, Christ has already told us that over and over again. You are to love your neighbor and love your enemy. You're to show compassion to people who don't deserve it. Because guess what? You didn't deserve it. And you're to show compassion to people who may not even want it. Because you know what? You didn't want it. And just as Christ was willing to show compassion to you in both of those circumstances, he says, if you're going to be like me, you have to show compassion. And we talked about that. That's a marker of a Christian. Well, in the same way, a marker of the Christian is your forgiveness. Your forgiveness. That is what marks you. Your ability to take the hits and say, you know what, though? I'm not going to hold it against you. Because you're just doing this out of your stupidity, just like I did it out of my stupidity my entire life and still am. I hope that Christ is still forgiving with me. And I hope that other people are very, very, very forgiving with me. 
Because guess what? I still make mistakes. I still fall. I still make stupid things. I still say stupid things. And I still do things that make people offended. And I hope and pray that there is forgiveness on the other side. So the forgiving way of Christians is to define them, to drive them, to make them unique and to set them apart from the rest of the world. You know, again, you go look at a snapshot of kind of Middle Eastern history, even going into the Old Testament Middle Eastern history. And you look at the reasons why even sanctuary cities were ever established in the Old Testament. They were established because of the revenger of blood. The one who, when you accidentally, in those cases, killed a person, their family automatically is coming after you. They get the posse and they're chasing you. And God made this very weird cultural thing there where you had these cities you could run to to have your case heard before someone just lynched you in the backyard. That mindset has always been and actually continues today. This whole idea of kind of blood money and paying back what you've done to me. I mean, there's a lot of the problems that are going on today in the Middle East on both sides, whether it's Jew or Palestinian or whether it's Arab or uh, Iranian or whatever it may be. All of these back and forths go back to you killed so-and-so 10 years ago and we still have a blood feud about it. You did this to so-and-so and we still have, we got to keep getting back at each other. What is absolutely opposite of that, hopefully, is the mindset that Christ had instilled in us and calls us to use, which is, yes, people are going to wrong you all the time. If you go on harboring that, if you go on with this blood money, blood lust, blood feud mentality, you are no different than anybody else in the world. And I've made you different. I've called you to be unique. I've created you again in a new way. You are a new creature. And that is to be completely different from the rest of the world. You want to know what's different from the rest of the world? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Letting it go and moving on. So, you know, we kind of started back in chapter 17 with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we talked then and what really started it was Christ teaching that you better humble yourself like a child because you're not entering the kingdom if you don't. Again, those were very clear and terrifying phrases you better humble yourself like this little child because if you don't you're not entering the kingdom of heaven he didn't say do it so you could have your best life or your best mental you know capacity or whatever he said no you're not coming in unless it's that way say oh but does that mean it no it means you if you are coming to the doors of the kingdom of heaven with the mindset of i deserve this i'm great i'm the chiefest i've got the breast to bring to the table he says guess what you'll never enter Because it's only those who are able to humble themselves and realize they don't deserve a bit of it. Christ has done it all for them out of his grace and mercy. And they are just, you know, they're they're just servants partaking in the master's table is all they're they're good for. That's the only way you're going to be able to enter in and enjoy the fruits of the kingdom of heaven. So he starts off with saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, the humble. The one who is able to realize where they stand in this world. The one who realizes that they don't deserve all this. They didn't do enough good things for God to credit them and reward them in this way. No, they were completely at the mercy of the great and almighty righteous judge. And if it had been left up to completely what we have done, then by golly, we would all be going to hell. But his grace and his mercy blessed us to be able to escape that. Now... If you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven that he has opened up to us, the only way you're going to get into that is coming in with that mentality. I don't deserve this. I am not worthy of this. I am humble enough to see. How can you love your neighbor if you're not humble? How can you love your enemy if you're not humble? How can you love God if you are not humble? So we talked about that last time. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the one who is humble. The one who is willing to be the servant over the master. The one who is rather to be last than first. So the humble is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The compassionate is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the forgiving is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Those are the three defining characteristics. You want to know what a Christian should look like and how a Christian becomes a Christian and what a Christian does? It's those three things. That everything flows out of a humility that drives them to compassion and forgiveness. Because that's what Christ did. That's who Christ was. We're professing to be Christians, which means we are Christ-like, which means we got to do what He did. we got to act how He did. If you look at Peter in the first letter Peter wrote to the churches in verse three, I mean in chapter three, verses eight through twelve, he'll kind of continue this idea of compassion, humility, and love and forgiveness and, and all these things, but he also ties it into a unity, a unifying factor, which is also what Christ goes into with this. So in first Peter chapter three, verses eight through twelve, he says this finally, be all of you one mind. Having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, which means be sympathetic, or be courteous, which means to be humble or meek-minded, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary rise that you give blessings, knowing that you are called and should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him askew or let him push away or reject evil and do good. Let him seek peace. Let him ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, again, in that verse, you would go, yeah, see, there's the righteous on this side, the ones that God loves and the ones that God's face is for. And then there's these evil, unregenerate, unelected people on the other side. And that's the one his face is against. No, his face is against these in this verse, in these chapters which he's speaking to, people who he's telling them, you need to be good, you need to be compassionate, you need to be humble, you need to follow after righteousness. Those people he was saying, guys, if this is what you're doing, the Lord's face is always towards you, the Lord's ears are always open to you, but if your tongue is speaking wickedness, if your mouth is speaking lies, if you are going after evil things, then the Lord's face is against those that do evil. Same thing he was talking about in 18. I say woe to the world because of the offenses that may come. Obviously we're in this world. Obviously we're going to be offended and there's going to be things that cause us to stumble and there's going to be attacks and temptations and all those things. And God says woe to it. Guess what? I'm fixing all that one day. But also woe to the one by whom they come. Whether that's you or me. Or some wicked, unregenerate person out in the world. Whoever it may be, God says, woe to the person who causes the stumbling. So here in the same way, he says, do these things. Receive the blessing, but also bless. You've received compassion. Now be compassionate. Enter into things with a humble or meek mind, not with some kind of high-minded, you deserve this mentality that's going to drive you away from any kind of compassion towards anybody. And be sympathetic in other people's issues. Again, if you're not sympathetic about where they are, then you're more likely to say, hey, you know what? Get out of here. You're just bothering me. Go on on that mountain. Get out of this sheepfold. Go do what you want to do. Get away from us. We've all tried to help you out and you didn't want to be helped. So take off, you heathen. I don't want to be around you anymore. So he says you are to do good. And if you want to love life and see good days, I mean, I think that's a, that is a beautiful phrase. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody would say, no, you know what? I hate life. It stinks. I don't want this anymore. I don't want good days. I've had enough of them. I want some bad days. I want to mix it up a little bit. Life is too ugly and, I mean, life is too good. I'm just not happy with it anymore. It says, if you want to love life and see good days, then you need to reject the evil. Say, so, well, what, what becomes of that? Well, when you love, if you want to love life and see good days, you're rejecting evil by doing all these compassionate, humble, meek-minded things, loving your brothers, having that mind in unity, okay? 
And in those situations, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his face is always with them. But we always have to be afraid of the contrary wise. Well, can't I have my cake and eat it too? Can I just play the part, still get the good stuff, and not have to worry about anything else? Because it's all, you know, it's all under grace and it'll all work out in the end. No, God, he says, no, my face is against the one who will do evil. I'm ferocious about protecting my little ones. If you offend them, there will be consequences. So this ongoing dialogue through Scripture of how we exist is through compassion, humility, and forgiveness. That's what Peter is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is teaching this in depth in this chapter, trying to instill this in his disciples, saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is made of. This is how you enter into it. And this is how you are to be. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. How do you prevent offenses? That's a good question. How do you prevent offenses? Well, through humility. The humble heart is much less likely to be offensive towards someone else, to cause another one to stumble. Why? Well, because in your humility, you're not seeking your own. You're not trying to get what's out best for you. You're not seeking to preserve yourself, aggrandize yourself, do anything like that. You are humbly recognizing that you don't deserve a bit of this and that everyone's on the same level. Actually, everybody's not on the same level. Everybody's on a level higher than you are. You put yourself on the lowest level to be a servant, not a master. Well, how do you address offenses when they come? We know they're going to come. He said, woe to those. I mean, it's going to happen. How do you address offenses when they come? Well, you address them with compassion. If you're compassionate about the offenses, compassionate about the person who might have been the offender, you have less of a likeliness or a propensity to be offensive yourself. I know where I came from, therefore I can be compassionate towards you and have mercy on you. And even though you did this and you might have done it out of complete hatred for me, or you might have done it out of unwitting ignorance. Either way, I can show you compassion. And I promise you that addressing offenses with compassion usually results in restoration. And how do you correct offenses when they do come? Where's our three-step process? Where's our one, two, three punch so we can get these offended people out of the way? And that way we can move on and we can have a happy little fold again. And everybody will be happy when we eat in the grass and it'll just be great. How do you get those offending people out of the way so that we can move on with this? Instead, how do you correct offenses? You correct offenses with forgiveness. That's how you correct it. You think about how we became who we are in Christ. Say, how did we get to where we are? How are we a new creature? How do we have the mind that we have, the heart that we have? How do we have all those things? It started with forgiveness. Christ on the cross with God, the Holy Father, saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. While they're spitting at him and throwing rocks at him. While they've nailed him to a cross. He's standing there going, forgive them for they know not what they do. How did we get where we are? Through forgiveness. The correction of that offense was through forgiveness and through the works of Jesus Christ. His compassionate, humble works that he did. This all comes back together. That's why these things are so important. You say, well, why are you just harping on this over and over again? Because this is what it means. This is what it means. So from the first Peter verses, you have the same thing. How do you create and sustain unity? How do you create and sustain unity and one-mindedness with amongst the little children, amongst the disciples, amongst the believers and everyone in the world? How do you, how do you go out into the world with everything around you? How do you maintain unity? Having compassion, loving one another, being sympathetic, being humble and meek-minded. It's the same thing. Peter's writing that 30 or 40 years later, the same thing. He's reiterating to the churches the same thing. 
And yet you will notice Peter in the exact same way as Christ cautions his disciples as well. Do this. Do this. If you do this, I promise you it's going to be great with you and the Lord. I promise you that. And even beyond that, you will love life and you will see good days. Not days free from temptations, not days free from offenses, but you will see good days in all that. Don't do it. The face of the Lord is against you. Don't do this. The Lord's wrath is against you. So what's the unity of believers? Because then he goes on. That's the second part of this. He's carrying off of this restoration to say, the reason why I'm telling you, you don't just cut them off and cut them out and say, be gone with you, you heathen, because I don't want to see you anymore, is because he says, verily, if you shall bind anything on earth, it shall be bound in heaven. If you shall loose anything on earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. We talked about this a little bit with Peter when he's giving him, talking about having the keys of the gates of heaven and all these things. That phrase, as best as we can conclude, has nothing to do with like some kind of securing eternal salvation for some or anything like that. All it is talking about is the things that were given to you from heaven, the things of the word of God, the teachings of Jesus Christ. When you do them, when you bind them, when you teach them, when you live them here in this world, he's saying there is a unity in that. Okay. And I know it's a little bit weird, but basically what he's saying is, is when you're doing this, you're reflecting the heavenly in your life. You are binding that you are declaring that to be the good, righteous way of the Lord. And when you don't do that, or when you teach that the other things of the world, the things that are not of God, the things you're loosening, the things you're saying, no, this is not what God has said. No, this is not how God is to, this is not how God said we are to live. This is not what it means to be a Christian. He says, you're letting that go. You're showing the world that that is loose. That is not tied to heaven. The best way that I can say that is what we are doing here, what we're trying to encourage and teach here about compassion and humility and love and all these things. Those are the things that are bound in heaven because that's what Christ told us to do. And when we go out and live that, we're binding that in that way. We're saying this is what it means. And when we go out there and say, I know you have heard that Christians believe this, but let me tell you what Christ actually taught. Then you were cutting that loose, saying... Unhitch that from Christ. Unhitch that from Christ. Christ never said he was okay with carpet bombing everyone in the Middle East because they're all Muslims. Okay? He never said that. I know you want to think that. And I know there's a lot of political stuff behind that. And there's a lot of quote-unquote Christians who profess things like that. But that's not what Christ taught. He didn't say hate your enemy. He said love them actually. He said actually if you're going to carpet bomb them with something, you're supposed to carpet bomb them with water and bread. Because that's how you're supposed to live with your enemies. So those kind of things he's talking about loosening and binding. But he says again, I tell you that if two of you are agreeing on something on earth as touching anything, that they shall ask it and it shall be done of them of my father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He's making a statement about unity. Obviously, to have unity, you have to have more than one component coming together in agreement. Okay? You can't have soloism. And I'm not talking about the Han Solo. I'm talking about like, you know, solo, one. Okay? So Christ is teaching this power of the unity of believers. The unity of believers, where I am or where two or three are gathered in my name, that means they are gathered together in unity behind this one principle of love and compassion and humility and all that. When you're gathered together in that way, I am there with you. You've heard him or you've heard the phrase before that there is strength in numbers. We've obviously heard that before. It's very true and a lot of military and, and other, re, other ways. Christ here, though, is teaching us that there is strengths in unity. When you are unified around me in my name, in my purpose, then I'm going to show you how two or three can cause the upsetting of the entire world. You had 12 apostles, 12 people out of the millions that were in existence at that time. And of all the, the large numbers of the Roman army or whoever it may be. And you had 12 men split up most of the time and walk around the entire Roman world. And a few hundred years had completely upended it. 
There was no strength in numbers in that way. There was strength in conviction in unity around the calls that they had. And Christ was saying, when two or three of you get together in my name to do my purpose, to show yourself humble, compassionate, merciful, loving, then guess what? That has so much more power. The things that you ask in those moments, my Father is more willing to give to you. Christ gives this same kind of phrase when he's talking in Luke chapter 17 about the kingdom of God. When he says, the kingdom of God comes not with observation, neither shall they say low here or low there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And that's not talking about within you like it's inside of me. The within you is in, I'm in your midst. When y'all are gathered together in my name, there I am. The kingdom is within you. You are the kingdom of God wherever we we go it's not one place it's not here it's not there it's not some church building in jasper wherever he says it's everywhere it's where my people are gathered in my name that's where the kingdom is where two or three are gathered in my name that in unity that's where i am in the midst of you and here he is not giving this idea of a, and, and this is the point that really has to be driven home. He is not talking about denominational dogma, okay? He's not talking about denominational dogma. This is not when two or three of the same denomination who believe the same thing, who practice the same practices are gathered. There I am in the midst because that's what's important. You can have a lot of people gathering together, and I've seen it over and over again. You can have a lot of denominational homogeny. You can have two, three, four, a thousand people of the same denomination professing they believe the same things, the same doctrines, the same teachings, the same practices. They've got it all right and all hammered out, and they have no compassion, no humility, no love, no mercy. And guess what? Christ is not there. He's not there in the midst. If he was, that's what you would see. When you don't see that, you can bank on the fact that that's not the case. Oh, but they're in unity. They have unity of doctrine, unity of practice, unity of belief in that way. Doesn't that, isn't that what he's talking about with unity? And that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I want you unified around me. Okay. You're unified in my name. Well, what does that mean? Well, I've been preaching to you for 20 verses about what my name means. My name means humility. My name means compassion. My name means mercy. The Old Testament prophets condemned Israel and said, I have, you know, God's writing through them saying, I never sought sacrifice. You want to know the sacrifice I wanted for you to show mercy and for you to walk humbly before me. This isn't new. Oh, but we've, we've got it. We're unified because we're of the same denomination. He says, that's not what the unity I was talking about. Never have. In fact, I don't think you're going to find anywhere in the Bible where Christ or anybody says anything about denominations, okay? Except sometimes in a negative way. He goes through here the whole time talking about unity in His purpose, cause, and name. And that is in mercy, compassion, love. And you say, man, you've talked about that a lot this morning. And I have because he has spent the entire chapter drilling this home to his disciples here saying, you have got to get this right. You have got to get this right. You have got to carry this forward because this is essentially what it means to be a Christian. Nothing else. Oh, well, but I, I, I go to church on Sunday. I wear a cross. I have a Jesus fish on my car. I was baptized. All these things. Don't those things mean I'm a Christian? No, those things are markers that are here that sometimes are associated with Christians. But if you want to be called a Christian, you have to do what Jesus did. I mean, that is just so simple. So that's why I keep drilling this home just as Christ is drilling at home because this is our problem. These things are our problems. 
This is why we even started going through this in Matthew two years ago was because of this reason. There are so many times and so many examples in our world today where people will go, oh, this is what Christians believe. This is how Christians act. This is what Christians do. And they don't have anything to do with what Christ actually did. It's things that denominations or churches or people who say they're Christians have gone out and done and enough of them have gotten together and agreed on and everybody says, oh, well, the Christians believe that. No, no, this is what we believe. This is how we should act because that's what Christ taught and did. So may God bless us to work on that.